Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with therapist Sean Dinkle. Sean is a licensed professional counselor and a certified addiction counselor in the state of Colorado. Over the past 14 plus years, he has facilitated more than 9,000 therapy sessions, 5,000 of those in group therapy. I reached out to Sean after I heard him on another podcast speaking about healing male anger, and a lot of what he said resonated with my experience. Over the years, I've dealt with my own anger issues, And a big part of the reason I got started on my healing journey 10 years ago was because I was tired of losing my temper with the women in my life, particularly my wife. I wanted to understand where my anger was coming from because my reactions were almost always overblown and not commensurate with the situation at all. As I got into it, I found that the roots of my anger were in deep-seated fear and insecurity that were a result of unresolved childhood wounds. And I think this is the case for a lot of men, and part of what Sean and I talk about is the shame that many men feel in admitting their own fear and insecurity, which keeps them from expressing it. And as you probably know, anger is often a defensive response evoked when we feel vulnerable. I believe that one of the keys to healing anger issues, particularly male anger issues, is to create safe spaces for men to express their pain and vulnerability. I'm happy to have Sean on the podcast because he's not someone promoting a book or seeking the limelight. He's out there in his community helping regular guys do their healing work and through that serving the greater good. Creating safer spaces for men to deal with their anger issues 
is a first step to creating safer spaces for everyone. And I hope that I'm also helping in that work by having conversations like this one. This is one of those episodes that isn't an interview per se, but more of a conversation with a peer. And at times you'll hear me trying to express some thoughts that come up in the course of our conversation, and I'm not always able to do that so eloquently because they might be things I've never tried to express before. So making public a conversation like this definitely pushes my edges around vulnerability. But I feel that honest, real, and unfiltered conversation is what's needed sometimes. In the first half of our conversation, Sean and I talk about his journey as a therapist, the problems with most psychology education, and the importance of the therapeutic relationship and what's needed to establish that. We also talk about some of the more prominent male figures in the spirituality self-help scene, like Gabor Mate, Jordan Peterson, and Jeff Brown. If you want to skip ahead to where we shift the focus to male anger, that happens around 40 minutes into the conversation. Before we get to the interview, I just want to take a moment and mention that my new book, Yoga and Plant Medicine, Integrating Yoga and Psychedelics for Your Healing, Growth, and Transformation is now available in paperback and Kindle on Amazon Worldwide. If you go to brianjames.ca forward slash resources, you'll find links for the Amazon outlet nearest you. I'll be doing some book readings and workshops in the coming months, and it would be really great to meet some of you in person. In October 2019, I'll be in Ottawa, Vancouver, and Victoria, and in November, I'll be setting up a date in New York City. For more information on upcoming events and everything else, please go to my website, brianjames.ca. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to medicinepathpodcast.com forward slash support for ways to do that. I know you hear the same request on every podcast, but for someone like me, every little bit helps keep this thing going. The bigger podcasts with advertisers and Patreon accounts that are bringing in thousands of dollars an episode don't really need your money. So please consider throwing a few bucks in my PayPal account or buying a book on Amazon. If you don't have extra cash right now, please consider writing a review or drop me an email letting me know that you appreciate my work. Every time I hear from one of you directly, it gives me a little boost of energy to keep going. Okay, that's all for now. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Sean Dinkle on The Medicine Path. So I thought that a great way to start this would be if you could just give us like a little bit of background about who you are and what you do, because some people may not know you. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to hear you on a podcast. I think it's called A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. That's the one. And I heard about that podcast because I was listening to Chris Ryan. Uh-huh. And the woman who does that podcast is a friend of his, I guess. And yeah. so he gave her a shout out. I said, oh, let me check that out. And I immediately went to your episode because I think in the title it talked about uh, men's anger. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of interested in what you had to say about that. And I found that I could really relate to a lot of what you talked about. And I like all the references that you uh, referenced uh-huh. in that talk. Like a lot of the people that you follow their work, I'm also yeah. interested in. Oh, wonderful. And so I think it's just like an amazing topic. And 
I like to have the opportunity to speak to people who may not be on uh, the bigger radar. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, someone who hasn't maybe written a book or done mm-hmm. a lot of podcasts or interviews or videos. Um, so I just thought, you know, it'd be great to reach out to you, see if you want to come on, and maybe we could just have a conversation about some of the stuff that we're both interested in. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you for having me. So, yeah. So for people who haven't heard you on that podcast, if you just give me like a little short background, uh, who you are, what you do. Yeah. So I'm a professional counselor by trade and I'm licensed in the state of Colorado. I'm duly licensed both as a professional counselor and a certified addiction counselor. Um, and so the, that's, you know, really the, the, the framework that I'm coming from. And over about the last 15 years, for the majority of that time, my practice was really overflowing. Um, I did a lot of court-mandated uh, domestic violence-related counseling for about 10 years. And I think, as I mentioned on that, on that podcast that you're referencing as well, uh, in the field, generally, a full-time group practice would, com- you know, be comprised of about two to four groups a week. And... At no time during that 10-year period, except when I started my own practice, was I facilitating any less than 10 groups a week. And at one point, it was high, as high as 14. And for a period of that time, I was also working towards my doctorate. And so I was working on my PhD, and I finished most of the coursework there, Not, um, but I didn't complete that degree. And one of the reasons why I didn't complete it, there's many, but one was that... Uh, I felt like I was gaining far more uh, clinically than I was, you know, behind the book. And so that's really what's informed a lot of my theories and a lot of the things that we may talk about is truly just a tribute to a lot of the men that I've worked with. Um, On the private individual side, I probably see a little bit more females um, than males, but uh, my practice right now is pretty balanced. So what I'm bringing is really from the standpoint of what happens in the therapy room. so, yeah, so that's, that's, uh, I, you know, and it's funny you mentioned books and things like that. That was one of the reasons why I was going to get my PhD. I felt like, well, there's going to be a book that I need to write at some point. I had always had that in me, um, but fear was always winning that battle. And I thought, well, a PhD might help sell a book. And that was kind of how I justified it. Of course, I was interested in learning. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, but at that time, I mean, really what I think, you know, where I come from is just really, I I was enjoying the clinical work more than, you know, studying 10, 12 people, maybe in a pilot study, for example, I was seeing a hundred plus people a week. And I felt like that was much more um, educational, I guess, than, than I could get in the formal education. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So when you were working toward your PhD, what was the focus? So I was a little sloppy with this. Um, and looking back, if I were to do it differently, I would have really tried to pursue a school that was more aligned with my philosophies. I might have done something that was looking more like in the psychedelic research realm or something of that nature. So, but I was somewhat trapped because my practice was full and I didn't really have the means to, you know, just pick up and move and, and go anywhere else. Um, I did my master's at uh, the University of Northern Colorado, and part of that program required that you did roughly the first year's worth of doctoral work. So I reapplied for that school because I had essentially some credit going into there that um, I thought could help me get through it. They offered a couple of different PhD programs, but the one that I was pursuing was um, a counselor education and supervision program. And the supervision aspect of it was really nice. So getting to supervise master's students um, for a year 
and getting in supervision on my supervision was also really beneficial. Out of all of it, that was probably the thing that I was able to take the most from in that. So again, that would have been, that degree would have set me up to be more in the collegiate realm, but I didn't like a lot of the research stuff that just really wasn't my, um, that just really wasn't my direction. So Mm. um, that was one of the parts of it that really didn't fit for me. Yeah. What did you get out of supervising master's students? I think the biggest thing that I got out of that was watching people unconsciously change the direction of the sessions. And it was typically around being triggered and being activated in ways that they were unaware of. So I would have, for example, there would be a client who was working with the student, the student in the counselor role. The client might bring up something like the loss of a grandparent. And then I would watch the counselor change the direction subtly um, and often become more cognitive. So if, let's say that the person says, I just lost my grandmother, they start to tear up, then that person would often, you know, Often I would see counselors change the direction of that conversation, essentially unknowing to them at the time because it was unconscious, or at least that was my uh, view of it. And I'll say more about that um, really was dismissive to the client and not therapeutically valuable at all. And in fact, maybe even hurtful. And so when I would be then in supervision, we would be watching the tapes together. Um, I would ask the question, you know, often, you know, what happened here? And then I would see the emotion come up for the clinician who was in the clinician role, who I was supervising. And I saw that kind of phenomenon happen quite frequently. And that's one of the reasons why um, I'm a big proponent. I think I mentioned this on on his podcast as well, that clinicians do their own work. And I encourage anybody who goes to work uh, or to go, go to see any counselor to ask them those questions. You know, what has informed you as it relates to your own personal work? Um, what has that taught you? And where are you at in that process? Because, um, even when it seems so subtly not that big of a deal, I found it to be a pretty big deal when people go and then they have their conversation essentially shut down on the client side. Um, so because, that was probably be, the, the biggest takeaway. Yeah. So like the clinician, something's being triggered in them and they're mm-hmm. uncomfortable with holding space for whatever uncomfortable emotion is arising. Yep. So they've got a unconscious defense mechanism in uh-huh. play. And so they're maybe going into a cognitive analysis or something. You got it. Getting away from the body and the feeling. Getting away from the body and the feeling. And that would typically come back up then in supervision. Now, occasionally what would also happen is that that would, that trigger would happen to the point where they would break down. And I saw a number of times, for example, where the counselor or the client would then hand the box of Kleenex to the counselor. That should never happen. Hmm. Um, You, the client should always have the freedom to have their space held. They should not be, you know, then triggered back into the helping role. They're there yeah. to be helped, not to <laughs> to go back there. Yeah. So interesting. Um, so I don't have like a lot of formal training in psychology or psychotherapy. Uh, it's something that's really arisen out of my yoga practice mm-hmm. and my own healing journey. It's just getting interested in what's going on under the surface. First for myself, trying to understand why, um, you know, I reacted to things in a certain way and why some behaviors persisted, even when I was aware of them, still not understanding like why they kept coming up. Yeah. So that led me into it. And then when I started working one to one with people in the context of teaching them yoga, often they would turn into uh, counseling sessions. You know, mm-hmm. we'd do like a little bit of practice. We'd sit down and talk about the practice <laughs> and we talk, we start talking about their life and what's yeah. going on and all that. So, um, 
out of like a feeling of responsibility and also curiosity, I started to do some reading and training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so primarily I was drawn toward like modalities that are more body-based and mindfulness-based, yeah. things like Hakomi, and now I'm training with Gabor Mate. And a oh, big, that's right. I forgot about that. Yes. Yeah. So in his compassionate inquiry method, and uh, particularly Hakomi and uh, Gabor's method, a big component of that is as the facilitator or counselor, uh, we're expected to be paying a lot of attention on what's going on inside of us yeah. dur- during the session to be noticing those triggers, to be, uh, be aware of them, not necessarily suppressing or anything like that. In, in some cases it's encouraged to be really transparent about what's going on in us. If we get triggered in a session now, what's your approach with that? Like in terms of, um, divulging to the client, you know, that you've been triggered and you maybe need a minute to, you know, center yourself or, or whatever mm-hmm. it is. What's your view of that? Well, I think especially if it happens, uh, it's better to be known than not known. And so if you're noticing it and you're not able to maybe, I mean, I think that there's like a continuum, there's a degree of activation. And so there might be a time where I'm aware that I'm activated, but it's not really strong. And now that might guide me towards maybe something I'll explore in my own personal therapy later on. If something came up to where it felt like, boy, I was really activated, really triggered, and I was having a hard time focusing or I needed to collect myself or something of that nature, then I might vocalize that or I might say something as you just mentioned. So it really happens to, uh, is related to the degree of activation. I firmly support and believe like what you had said though, that we should be doing a lot of self-check-ins throughout our time in the session and paying attention to our own body and our own physiological responses. I know for myself, there's a lot of times I won't know where that material is coming from. Um, if I feel some slight activation and I often have to do some kind of meditative or body work exercise and I, which I can also do some to, to a certain degree of efficiency on my own. Um, if it's not overly activating and doesn't drive me back into, you know, having to do another counseling session, but I may not be able to figure it out in the moment, but I will note that body sensation that allows me to then go back to that sensation when I may be laying down quietly by myself uh, or sitting quietly by myself after the day is over or before the next day starts is really checking in. So if I notice a tightness in my chest, what was that about? And really being uh, drawing the attention to that and trying to explore that a little bit further. And often it comes, you know, Hey, this was about this, or maybe this was activated where I might not know that in the session. So I'm usually just flagging things if I, if I notice that that comes up. But again, a lot of it is about being proactive and doing your own work so that that isn't dominant, that isn't happening to the point of where you need to really vocalize, hey, that was really activating and triggering for me. That doesn't happen to me much anymore. There's not a lot of material that gets brought up that I don't feel comfortable sitting with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess this like points to something that I've started to feel is absolutely crucial for anybody in a helping profession, but particularly in a kind of counseling role is to have a dedicated practice, like a Mm -hmm. personal personal practice where you're very tuned into what's going on with you on a physical and emotional level. Um, 
and it's, it's something that, you know, with amongst my other trainees that uh, it's not actually very common. And I'm like, I'm a, bit, I'm a bit surprised by that. Yeah. Just like when I'm surprised when I do a yoga teacher training and I find out that a lot of the people in that training who want to be teachers don't actually have their own practice first. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always a bit kind of surprised <laughs> by that. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm wondering, like in your formal training, how much importance was placed on having some kind of somatic or awareness practice? Oh man, you're going to fire me up now. Um, <laughs> Let's go. I, I uh, it's your own work is recommended or was recommended at the school that I you know, trained at, um, but it was not required. And I would flip that. It should be an absolute requirement. It should not be something that's recommended. It should be a, a mandatory part of the education. And if not the biggest part of the education, I do not think, well, and you may be able to appreciate this as well from your work down on Temple of the Way or Light, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, you know, describing the psychedelic journey, describing an ayahuasca journey to somebody who hasn't taken it. I mean, I, I mean, I find that it's very similar from the therapeutic side. I still struggle finding the words to articulate the experiences that happen in therapy, just as much as I would have a hard time articulating. And some people do this better than others, but I've struggled to find the words that accurately could portray what the healing journey is like, whether you're using a psychedelic or not in that. Um, And so I just think that it's so limited if you're not going undergoing your own work um i just i don't think you can gain a lot from degrees um unfortunately i would say that maybe five percent of what i find useful in that therapy room comes from the training that i have the degrees and licenses on the wall allow allow me to practice they do not i i like i said i can't attribute more than five percent of what they've given me to the success that i have with any clients that i see Mm-hmm. It reminds me, uh, I think I first heard Irvin Yalom talk about this, but I, I've since seen that there's actually been studies on what catalyzes healing or mm-hmm. where does the benefit come from in, um, in therapy. And it's something like 98% is from the relationship. Mm-hmm. And the other 2% is maybe the insights that the psychotherapist offered or some particular technique or tool that they shared with you. But like Irvin Yalom says, it's all about the relationship. Mm-hmm. And he said people who he's had a long-term relationship with, when he's talked to them about you know what they got out of that time, he said often, you know, they can't actually point to one particular thing. Yep. It's more about like the container that was created. And I think uh, just that connection that can be so rare in our culture where you actually feel seen and heard. I think that's where the healing happens. You are absolutely correct. And so there was a guy by the name of Bruce Wampold um, who wrote a book called The Great Psychotherapy Debate. And I would not recommend anybody reading that thing unless you really like statistics and you like all those <laughs> fancy letters and numbers and things that they use to do the math behind it. Um, but it was really a meta-analysis of all the research that had been done to that point, um, looking at if we separate out technique, you know, what accounts for the you know, the variables and change. And you're absolutely right. And so what he found is that less than 1% of the change comes from the actual techniques that are being used and 99% are coming from what's referred to as the therapeutic relationship. And Mm -hmm. you just, 
you know, identified that very well by saying how well understood a person feels is the biggest driver and whether or not that there's success in the therapeutic, um, you know, realm. Okay. So knowing that Mm -hmm. what's required in order for that to happen to me, it has to be, you know, you're doing your own psychological work, but you're Mm -hmm. also doing, you know, some sort of somatic and awareness work, whether it's yoga or something else, you know, I'm a yogi. So I'm kind of, mm-hmm. <laughs> I just think it's like the great all in one practice, but. Uh, well, and, and the thing is from what I understand of your work and your yoga practice thus far is that you use it as an ex- excavating tool as well. Mm-hmm. Similar to like what Sean Korn might describe or what she talks about in her yoga practice, that that is not used to necessarily flee one's emotions in their body and their experience, or just as an exercise practice, but it's a practice about bringing that material to the forefront. Um, is my understanding correct with that? Well, you know, it's, it's all about inquiry. And yeah. so like, that's a somatic inquiry, mm-hmm. but it's also a psychological inquiry. And that, that's a piece, the psychological piece, which is actually a huge component of classical yoga, but something that isn't conveyed in, in the, the kind of world. mainstream yeah. commercialized mm-hmm. yeah. yoga world, because you can't really do it in a group class. You know, you could have a personal experience, maybe if there's time for meditation or you're lying in Shavasana, you've unraveled some of the tension in your body, noticing what arises, but it's often not named. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it happens more in the one-to-one context, which is really how yoga was usually taught. Um, and so, like, I think the first yoga teachers were actually like counselors. Yeah, absolutely. And guys. And somatic therapists, maybe even. Completely. Yeah. No, it's like, it's kind of an all in one therapy, but, um, that's mostly been lost in the commodification of yoga. Yes. So yeah, for me, it's like, it's about self care, but it's also about self inquiry on all these different levels. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, back to the, you know, to the, to the question, you know, how does one do that? You know, how does one become a good listener. And so this is really interesting because if I describe to you listening technique, it's actually fairly simple. Good listening technique is being able to reflect back to a person what you hear them saying. But when I say hear in the context that I just mentioned, it's really felt or sensed. And so if we're using the intellect as the only um, measure or tool or transmitter for information, we're going to miss a whole bunch. So a lot of times I'm listening with my body, for example. So I'm listening to that reaction. And a lot of times if I have a reaction, it's not a trigger that they're bringing something up for me or that they are pushing me away in that moment. But what's happening is I'm going, oh, I know that sensation. And so it's a reflective sensation. It's not necessarily bad or difficult it's so are you saying this it sounds like you might be feeling this way and what i'm doing is i'm tapping into my state that goes is this what so it's not necessarily is it coming from me but does my body have a resonance familiarity with the sensation that they're describing uh or they may be having even somatically so if i watch a little bit of a twitch in the body or whatever and i say hmm, you know i noticed when we were talking just now that you had this response And I'm wondering if it might have been related to this, or I'm wondering if it might, that sensation might've felt like this. And anytime I get it, there's a big light up. There's a big, yes, you got it. And that moves the conversation forward. And then that you got it. There's a lot of healing that happens. So when you're saying, how does one do that? It would be really difficult if you are not in tune with your body 
it would be really difficult to listen effectively and build that therapeutic relationship if you are if you've locked away certain emotions if you do not do your own shadow work if you see your shadow side as being bad or negative you're going to miss out on a whole bunch of relatable information or ways that you can connect um and so Again, not just relying on the head, not just the words that you're hearing, but how your body feels in response, and then being able to convey that back to the client. Um, and I think that that's yeah. something that all humans should, you know, <laughs> if we got better at, uh, I'd be out of business and that would be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm always saying that with my, uh, with my yoga practice. I'm like, I'm trying to make myself uh, obsolete. Because uh, mm-hmm. that's, if, if I actually am, empowering the person they're not going to need me after absolutely a while. um yeah when you're talking about like mirroring i think it's one of those things that i see with um with trainees you know uh we learn about someone like carl rogers and we uh-huh. watch we watch videos of him working right and often uh the kind of first stage of starting to practice that is like what you're talking about like repeating back the same words to the person mm-hmm which is great. Like you've heard me, I guess. Yeah. You heard the content, but you didn't feel me. Exactly. And this is what I was going to get to is that when I'm working with someone often, and I never thought about why I do this, but as you're talking, I'm thinking about it. And what I often say is, uh, you know, I feel like you're saying this because I'm tuned into what's going on in me and what they're talking about is invoking a somatic response in me. And I'll find like, in a session, I'm often like touching my body. Like if they're talking yeah. about this feeling in their heart, my unconsciously, my hands go to my chest and I'm, uh-huh. and I think like that is healing because it uh, is an, is a affirmation that there's a real connection going on. Mm-hmm. And the person feels that when they go, yes, that's exactly like what I'm feeling now mm-hmm. too. And you're together and like, that's healing, right? It's connected. 100%. And I think a lot of people have the fear that you're going to go down. You're both going to sink into a hole that you, neither one can climb out of. That has not been my experience. And so moving into that realm is once a person is identified, everybody's kind of psychic structure wants to move to higher ground, if you will. And I don't say that as in a, as in a better place. So maybe that's not the right words. But people are trying to experience more of the positive emotion and they have a hard time realizing that if you go into the darker side of that emotional continuum, that you're going to get stuck there. And actually that's for me, what gets people more into the genuine side of, you know, the feel good states. Once a person feels heard and understood, it's like that looping and that rumination that they pattern that they may be in uh, absolves at that point. So once a person feels heard and understood, they often move into new, new material. There's a, there's a movement that happens. There. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm thinking of uh, an image that often comes to mind in this is like that fear of being sucked into mm-hmm. the, the difficult emotion or the mm-hmm. deep emotion. Um, it's like, you know, your friend has fallen into a hole. You want to help them if the impulse is to jump in the hole with them, you're both stuck in the hole. So (laughs) you have to be kind of grounded in Mm -hmm. yourself in order to actually help them out of that. Like, so there has to be a connection there, but you have to remain rooted in, in who you are and and in your center. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm wondering like what you think, what's happening when someone, whether it's a therapist or just a friend 
does get drawn in and kind of loses the, their sense of self? Is it a sense of like, uh, is it a matter of creating boundaries? Um, or is there some kind of like neediness to like, un, if I'm the, if I'm the counselor working mm-hmm. with someone, if there's maybe some unconscious need for me to be connected to this person or to, mm-hmm. or to save them, maybe save them. Yeah. Like what is it that would um, cause someone to fall into the hole? Man. And hopefully I'm answering the question. I, I think the biggest thing is not being familiar with the hole <laughs> and not knowing how to get out of it. So if you've done a lot of your work, you've found yourself in many holes, many times <laughs> and over practice, you found ways that you, or that you've learned that those whole, you know, how to get out of those holes. So you're familiar with the territory. And so that's the biggest way is to not get overwhelmed by the experience is to have practice with the experience, right? So I think like the best comparative analogy that I've come up with is that, or the best metaphor, I don't know which one is accurate here, is that of like a lifeguard, right? So you can't help somebody who's drowning without getting into the water. If you're a lifeguard, the only way you're going to help somebody, it's not going to be about barking commands about how to kick your legs and move your arms from the lifeguard stand. You're not effective from the lifeguard stance, but you need to have a degree of competence and confidence that you can swim out to where that individual is and bring them back out of the water to safety. So you need to have familiarity with the water and you need to not be overwhelmed by that. And I think that a lot of what does that is practice. And that practice is doing your own work and getting into that difficulty. And so when it comes up, it doesn't overwhelm you. So you know you have a frame of reference for that that hole that that person's in, but you've climbed out of that hole successfully several times. So you have a degree of confidence that then I think that your clients sense and feel and they borrow from that. They go, oh, this guy knows where he's going. He's Mm -hmm. traveled that, that path before. And there's a trust that's built into there because there's a confidence that gets conveyed. What I think happens on the opposite side, whereas it goes really south and it goes really bad is when counselors have not done their own work, they get activated and now they're in and essentially they're out there drowning with the person. So back to that lifeguard example, if they had never swam or they weren't competent at that level of swimming, now they're both out there. So now you got two people lost at sea yeah, with no roadmap. And the sharks are circling. <laughs> and the sharks are circling. Yeah. So that's the best framework that I have for it. So how does one person not avoid that? You've got to do your own work. I, you, just, you cannot get this from a book. Yeah. What do you think um, about the impulse for people to, uh, like people who kind of wake up to their own suffering? It seems like sometimes the first impulse is to become a healer or to become a yeah. counselor or therapist. What do you think that impulse is about? Is it a way for someone to do their work by learning about the therapy or is it an avoidance in like, if I can help other people, there's maybe an unconscious avoidance to doing their own work. I think it's that, um, and my best guess is it's a bypass. Like it's, 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 it's almost like a spiritual bypass, but just a work bypass. Maybe they're the same. And so it's like a workaround attempt. And I think it's unconscious. I don't know that many people are, who are doing that are aware of it. Right. And I could probably see myself in that role at the beginning stages of my um, therapeutic practice. I've certainly grown over the years, but what drew me to that field was my kind of the first positive therapeutic experience that I, that I had had, but my work was far from done. And so, um, 
you know, I might be digressing here a little bit, but I think that that's what it is. It's that people want to heal themselves by getting another person to do the work that they themselves have not done Mm, or that they are afraid to do. Yeah, of course, that Uh, would be totally unconscious, right? Well, and I give you an example. So in my first practicum, when I was finishing my master's degree, we, there was a, a clinician in training who was working with somebody who was going through a pretty bad relationship. And it looked like that there might have been some domestic violence dynamics, for example. And so then the clinician and in, in training had just basically had said, well, here's what you need to do. <laughs> and that's like, you're not supposed to tell anybody mm. what they're supposed to do. Right. And that person, you know, I'd known enough about them just from being in class with them. I think had their own difficulties getting out of previous abusive relationships or really negative relationship patterns. So now they've got a client who has a similar situation and they're going to get that client to now maybe have the boundaries that they themselves don't have in their personal relationship. So it's like, well, if I can get somebody else to do it, it's almost like I did it myself. Mm, mm -hmm. Now that's a guess, but that's my best guess. Yeah. And like with your experience, I think there's also this thing and I I see it in the yoga world too, with young teachers. Uh, Like I'm always trying to think like, what's the impulse to want to teach, Mm -hmm. especially if you haven't had your own practice. Yeah. But I think some of it comes out of like, you have an amazing experience. Yep. You go, Oh, I want to give that to other people too. Cause that felt amazing for me. Yes. And that's what I was describing at the first, like it, my positive therapeutic experience when I could noticeably see improvements in my life, especially that occurred between the ages of about 20 to 25, about 19 to 25, things that weren't going to happen happened as a result of, you know, my first, you know, positive experience. There was more to be unraveled and uncovered. And now if you were to ask me, you know, why do I do it? It's more out of a sense of, um, paying it forward than anything. Um, and, and there's more of a, um, you know, there's a part of me that, that, that doesn't even want to do it anymore. If that makes any sense, like, cause it's coming from a different place. It feels more like, uh, you know, a calling at this point than a desire to help be, or because my life was improved. Mm. Um, so it's changed quite a bit in my own, in my own experience of in terms of what motivates me. But I do think, as you mentioned, a positive experience, you know, I had, had this kind of breakthrough and so then I want to give back. And I think that's a wonderful place to, you know, to operate from. Versus yeah. I want to heal myself through somebody. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking though, like in that initial stage for you and with uh, some like younger teachers that it's not about giving back yet. It's mm-hmm. more about um, how good it would feel to give someone that kind of positive experience. Mm-hmm. Now, like you, for me, um, teaching now for me almost feels like an obligation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, like it feels like, reciprocity. That's exactly what it feels like to me. Yeah. And I remember when I was thinking about, Oh, you know, I've had really amazing experiences and I kind of want to be done with this. And this was some of the awareness that came out of my first uh, experiences working with ayahuasca was that, you know, it felt like things were coming to an end on some level, like, okay, so you've, you know, kind of gotten what you need from this. And I was going to, you know, and as soon as I started contemplating walking away from it, it was like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> you were given some of these experiences for a reason. Um, and that reciprocity is to pay this forward. And uh, and then I started not liking that so much. But um, it doesn't feel like something that I will successfully run from without being haunted by it. So, mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, well, you know, this work uh, that we that we both do, 
it's not easy. No, I, I found one of the most difficult aspects for me is the kind of like self promotion and the hustling yes. that, that's required. Like if, if I could just do the work, that's one thing. And that's yep. like super joyful <clears throat> and rewarding in a lot of ways. <clears throat> Excuse me. But when I'm kind of, you know, uh, there's so much competition for people's attention out there. Yes. There's so many kind of free resources that may seem like they'll be helpful, but like, I know that they're not going to really be healing for people because it lacks that personal relationship. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, God, like I got to be out there doing this thing in order to do that. I've got to be hustling on Instagram. I got to be writing blog posts. I've got to yep. write, like I just, published a book. Uh, I got to be doing a podcast. I got to be like on YouTube with videos, all yeah. this stuff that I'm not super comfortable with not being a natural extrovert. Uh -huh. um, and that may, that's really difficult, but it's kind of like, well, it's the only way to do it these days. Um, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So I guess what I'm getting at is like, it has to kind of come from a place of like obligation and like, man, I'm so grateful for, what I've received from mm -hmm. whether it's been a counselor, a yoga teacher, or a, a plant medicine person. Yeah. I'm just so grateful for that, that I got to give something back. Um, and so in spite of like how much I dislike some of the kind of promotional and hustling and all that, um, it's like, well, I got to do it. Yeah. And, and what you just said resonates exactly with what I was trying to say. I think you did a better job of it. And so I would agree a hundred percent with that. And I think it, it and it's the, it's almost like it's, it comes from the place, the opposite end of the ego. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. And when I was in negotiation with whatever you want to call it spirit or whatever with, you know, so what do I do with this? Um, and speaking of that ob obligatory sense and part of my initial workaround uh, or my negotiation was there have been other people that I think that have said similar things. They've had the similar discoveries um, to what I've been shown in my own clinical practice over the ninth, last 9,000 plus sessions. Um, I'm not bringing a whole lot new to the table that hasn't been said before. Although what I've learned is, um, is represented by a minority voice. And the thing that it got kicked back to me that, that came very clear was you don't have to change anybody. You don't have to make a million dollars of this. You don't have to get X amount of followers, but you have to say what you've learned and you have to then essentially cast your vote. And I think about somebody like Alice Miller, who, whose writing was, you know, likely later vindicated by the ACE study, for example, but she was writing about what was leading to, you know, most of the destruction that we were seeing in the world for, you know, 20 years, you know, beginning, I think in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, and I think, man, what a lonely voice. And while she might be able to articulate something better than I can or write better than I can, or essentially saying the same things that I would say, it's about casting that vote. And so that's really where I'm at in my own journey at this point. And whether it's being, you know, starting my own podcast, as I mentioned with you and blogging more, every time I write a piece, it's not about, did you, you know, did you reach 200 people? It's about, did you say what you learned uh, in a way that's casting a vote into what can help humanity? And that's where that obligation comes from. So thank God um, that I don't have any sense of you've got to reach a thousand people with this message. It's, you know, you might reach 10, but that's your work. And every time I do it, it's very satisfying. And it feels like that there's what I call a, you know, a spiritual debt that's been paid. Yeah. I haven't paid the whole account down yet, but I've yeah, paid some of it. <laughs> totally. 
Um, and it makes me think too about what we were talking about earlier in looking at like how healing happens and how it is 99% about the relationship. And so while everything has been said and I'm like standing on the shoulders of giants who have come before, uh, me putting myself out there allows for an opportunity for someone to have a real relationship with what I've learned mm-hmm. other than through reading Gabor Mate's books or watching yeah. videos. Cause that's all out there. Like all mm-hmm. the information is out there, but what's not available in that is people aren't going to have a personal relationship with Gabor Mate yeah. or Sean Korn or some famous yoga yes. teacher or whatever. And so I feel like we need to be out there make ourselves available for real, actual, intimate human connection, which is where mm-hmm. the healing actually happens. It's not Ab- about... Absolutely, yeah. It's not about... It's not that understanding attachment theory and trauma and all this stuff will heal you. No, you it will it. give you some insight into maybe what's going on underneath the hood, but healing happens in relationship. Well, yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. And it's like um, Jeff Brown talks a lot about this. So I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Um, but most people's wounds happened in the context of relationship. Yeah. And thus healing has to happen in the context of relationship. So it's like if you, you know, um, had food poisoning from eating pizza, I don't know that eating chicken the rest of your life is going to absolve that wound. <laughs> you might have to go back in and have some successful runs with the food that made you sick. So it's the same kind of context. And now you don't have to heal with the same people who harmed you. But if re- if wounds happened or trauma happened in a relational context, healing has to happen in a relational context. And so the books and the, you know, the, the talks that you're referencing, those can point a person in to a direction. But if they lack a relationship, they're going to lack healing power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you about male anger. Mm-hmm, and here sure. we've talked about like therapy. For, yeah. <laughs> but I, I would like to talk about this. So maybe okay. like it's like a, a pivot here. Absolutely. Uh, which is, you know, I, I just can't make it any smoother. I'm sorry, but I do want to talk <laughs> to you fine. about this. <laughs> Um, so yeah, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast is I heard you talking about, uh, male Mm -hmm. anger and, you know, it's been an interesting inquiry for me in my life is trying to understand where misplaced anger comes from, um, what happens when it's suppressed, why I would suppress it, uh, like the stigmatization of Mm -hmm. male anger and, and all this stuff. It's, it's very, uh, it's very complex, but uh, I'm kind of curious, like how you became interested in this, like how this became a focus, or was that something that happened organically through the people who came to you, or was this an interest of yours before you became a therapist? A little bit of both um, of what you'd mentioned. Um, so apparently I was decent at working with it um, because that, you know, my group practice had grown to the point that it did. And then I happened to join a, uh, a clinic at, right after finishing my master's where the, um, 
the clinician who owned the the organization uh, was a domestic violence provider. And so I got a lot of kind of my postgraduate hours and things like that. And I was doing intakes with that population. So it was just a natural introduction. Now, in my own personal life, I come from a background where there was a significant amount of domestic violence um, in the home and in the community. Uh, at large, we grew up fairly poor, and so it was all around. So it wasn't just in the house; it was it was outside the house. Um, so I think that that was a part of it. You know, that I was interested in it. And I remember being as young as six years old and watching, you know, the the battles that my parents would have, and really be curious because it just didn't make sense. And I knew, you know, I I want to know what that was about because it didn't seem like that that was the best way to live one's life um, was in that kind of psychological state. So in a lot of ways, I think that that initially turned me away from, you know, the, the, the concept of anger is this is just something that's bad and, you know, kind of just needs to, to be gotten rid of. Um, and I think that is true to a degree still now as well. I do think that there's something to be said for healthy anger and a healthy release of anger. And I think is, people. We need more ways of doing that. Um, but one of the things that I learned from all the men that I had worked with is that anger typically isn't going to resolve any healthy way until you get to the primary emotions that are driving that anger. And a lot of times that gets confused with saying, well, you know, then there's no such thing as anger independent of those primary emotions. And there can be, but what I found was, and what allowed me to predict who was going to reoffend as a clinician, meaning who was going to um, either violate their probation or who was going to find an arrest uh, in the future, were those people who couldn't identify the primary hurts or wounds that fed that anger, and they couldn't work through those things. So there's almost always going to be a primary emotion that's going to feed anger. And so if these emotions are left unidentified and or unexpressed, they're going to lead to explosive levels of anger that are going to be pretty toxic to themselves and to other people and not very therapeutically value. So, you know, flavors of sadness, fear, hurt, um, loneliness, those kinds of things are typically primary. Um, and as men, we're socialized that, you know, hurt and fear or sadness and fear, loneliness, things of that nature uh, are all, you know, uh, really essentially just not allowed. And these are the things that could have gotten us into trouble if we would have openly shown them, even at, say, fifth grade on the playground. Then you're going to open yourself up to more humiliation, more being made fun of. Maybe you go home and you come from a household that says, you know, that's not how boys or men are. You know, you go back out there and fight. And essentially what that may mean is that you go back and suppress. And so I think a lot of what is required of men these days primarily, but I see more and more women where this applies to is to be able to identify what is the primary emotion that might be underneath this anger that I'm feeling. And then can I find a safe place to express that in its authentic form? And that authentic form usually has a somatic component to it or a body, you know, orientated component to it. So anger is always going to be coupled with something is what mm. I've learned. Yeah. Uh, when you talk about the expression in a somatic form, is that mm -hmm. right? Are mm -hmm. you talking about the anger itself or the underlying suppressed emotion? Well, so my last uh, personal therapeutic experience was where I expressed much more anger than I'd ever had as its kind of raw, powerful self. But whenever I would have a pretty big somatic burst of anger, which might, you know, 
it first involved a, a severe clenching of the fists to the point where I thought I was going to break my fingers off in my hands or a pressing together of my palms to the point where I thought my chest, my sternum might crack. Feeling that level of anger and getting back in touch with that was very beneficial. But what I would also find was that as soon as that nervous system release would happen, that kind of hot side of the nervous system release would occur and it might you know, occur with like a kind of a physical explosion, meaning like a, just a, 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 you know, a kicking of the legs or a, or a movement of the hands. There was one point in my somatic processing experiences where, you know, I was just swinging wildly into the air, just, mm-hmm. but as hard as I could just to feel that power and feel that energy start to course back through my body, very healing in and of itself. Right. However, what I would also typically find is there would be a cycling and a cycling back into the grief that might have been underneath that as well. And so getting to experience both of them in their depths. So it's the extent of the anger, being able to work that out through the body. If the body wanted to punch, if there was a clenching that would happen, allowing that to happen. Um, with a therapist that I was working with, one of the nice things hey, was Sean, that... Uh, Sean, uh-huh. I'm sorry, I got to pause. I got to go get the dog. One oh, second, sure. Okay? Absolutely. Hey, sorry about that, man. Okay, yeah. if, if somebody rings the doorbell, he goes off. Oh, and it just comes right through. So I got it. <laughs> and I didn't hear it. So, but but well, I, I was trying. I was trying to mute. <laughs> but at a certain point, I got to unmute. And if he's going off, it's no, good. you're fine. I appreciate it. I know right where I was at. So, oh, good. Essentially, you know what I was talking about is that experiencing the raw power of that anger was very therapeutic and healing for me. But what I would find is is there would be a coupling or a counterbalancing emotion, typically. Um, that was related to maybe grief that was underneath that. And that grief might be related to a loss of, of self that happened, let's say, in a, in, a, uh, in a sexually abusive experience that I may have had, you know, um, as a child or a situation where my parents were fighting and I couldn't escape. Um, and, you know, so, so I'm feeling now the sadness and the fear that I might not have been able to fully feel as a child which would also then stem to the anger that I had to feel that or had to have those experiences on top of it. So they're both existing simultaneously, but one is influencing the other. And in my estimation, I don't know that just feeling the anger would have resolved the grief that was underneath it. So Hmm. I find that they're both important, that there's usually going to be a counterbalancing um, pain that's going to be underneath that, uh, underneath that anger. Um, and I think that we're expanded beings. If we can allow ourselves to experience both of those, especially if we're in a therapeutic context where it's safe um, and the counselor is not intimidated by the anger uh, as an aside, here's one of the things I'll say, you didn't ask about this, but I feel like it's important to mention right now is that there's a lot of counselors and this also comes from not doing your own work who will reject or maybe even, you know, um, terminate the therapy with a person who um, may have some anger that's coming up and because they don't feel safe or they don't know how to work with that. So again, this is another example, kind of going back to what we were saying earlier, where somebody could get in trouble allowing their anger to come up therapeutically and maybe in a somatic experience with a professional who wasn't who, who had that as an off-limits place to go. Um, ideally, both places are, are welcome. Um, And if the counselor can guide a person into feeling their anger without being destructive with it, um, 
that's always beneficial. Oh, and you asked about the somatic, somaticizing of it. So in the body, sometimes there's the punching, kicking, squeezing, those kinds of things that can happen that where we're acting out or we're reliving something. Um, but often some of the purging mechanisms I find to be almost identical to the purging mechanisms that are evoked in an ayahuasca ceremony. So if a person's working through sexual abuse, for example, a lot of nausea will typically come with that. And there may be some vomiting that happens. And I've had that happen in my sessions as well with people. Um, and so there's no medicine taken, but that nausea and that vomiting is still a, an emotionally purging uh, mechanism that can show up in the therapy room. Um, tears are often another one that's, you know, fairly common and then shaking or trembling, um, something that looks like a convulsion, um, working where the nervous system is kind of working that energy out. And so that's what I, uh, to, to uh, kind of elaborate on what I meant by somatic processing. Hmm. So often there's tears, shaking, um, maybe some nausea, some vomiting, that kind of stuff that can happen too. Hmm. So one of the ways that uh, male anger has been dealt with in the, in the past, and I think it's probably still happening is in men's groups. And, mm. you know, I'm thinking about someone that I've had on the podcast that I know you follow his work too, Stephen Jenkinson. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to him about, getting into men's work back in the nineties when that whole movement was happening with Robert Bly and Michael Mead and those guys. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he talked about, you know, the way that he characterized it and what ultimately turned him off of that work that was being done is that he found people became catharsis junkies. Uh-huh. So they would go to the men's group and they would, they would rage, they would express their anger in a really somatic and vocal way, um, but there was no real transformation that happened. My best guess as to why that is, is because they didn't get to that counterbalancing emotion that was driving in underneath it. They didn't get to that more raw and vulnerable emotion that was also coupled with that anger. And so there really isn't a lot of a catharsis effect for anger by itself as far as what I've seen. So if that anger isn't also being processed through the primary emotion that's feeding it, then there typically isn't a resolve. Mm -hmm. And that might've been what he's referencing there is if you're just going to be angry, I mean, think about it, that anger is a protective function and necessarily. So we need it if we are under severe threat. Um, but if we're th being threatened, there's a vulnerable self that's underneath that as well. And if that doesn't have any vocalization, if that doesn't have any processing, then the anger can't resolve. Hmm. So yeah. just the expression of anger, I don't think can, um, and that might've been what he's referring to then. I'm yeah, wondering. It's, it's not enough. And I think like Stephen Jenkinson calling it, um, you know, labeling people catharsis junkies, I guess there's something in that because there is something really exciting or, or drug-like about mm -hmm. getting into that anger place and really expressing it somatically or, mm -hmm. or vocally. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of like endorphins running and adrenaline mm -hmm. and all that. So that can be kind of addictive and yep. you can feel really kind of peaceful afterwards, you know, after you like explode this out. Uh, and so that could be, I don't know, a way to bypass the work. It's like, oh, yeah. I just, I feel better. Uh, well, it I, might, I got it out. Right? Yeah. And it might fit itself in more into the, the camp of what um, is often referred to as anger management versus what I like to call anger resolution. Anger resolution is going to have to involve 
those primary emotions of hurt, sadness, grief, loss, pain, um, those vulnerable emotions. Um, it can't just be uh, separate from those things. So maybe to manage your anger, it might be just the expression of it and nothing else um, might help because it might give you that kind of nervous system discharge. But man, it's not going to last um, mm-hmm. if it's independent of those other primary emotions that I've referenced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I think about managing anger, um, it a lot of times feels like repression, like yeah. count to 10, like push it back down or something. Well, that's know? exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. But again, and if you deal with what's feeding on that anger, the anger doesn't have to express itself in that way. So if you're really hurt because of a significant loss, um, if you can get to the tears that might express that loss, that anger is weakened so much and it's not something you're suppressing. It's something that just isn't as volatile. It's not as active. And that's the one thing that I used to predict whether or not somebody was going to reoffend when I was working in the criminal population. And it guided me pretty well over those 5,000 sessions. It was pretty accurate with saying, and it's what built my business. I mean, it's one of the things that I think allowed me to, be facilitating 14 groups a week, you know, at one point it was because I was pretty good at predicting who was going to come back and who was not. And the single thing that I used was who could get to the primary emotions that were underlying that anger. They were all there for violent, you know, crimes. Um, and obviously their anger had gotten out of control. I just expressing more anger wouldn't have been helpful to them. But finding that wounded little boy inside them and then creating some safety and context for that little boy to work through what he never could have, maybe in his own traumatic upbringing. That in and of itself was what led me to, you know, predict with a pretty high degree of accuracy whether or not who was going to, you know, reoffend and who wasn't, who was going to be done with it. So, um, yeah. from yeah, my my experience is that if you don't get to those underlying ones, then um, it's going to explode again because it is just repression and avoidance. For sure. Yeah. Like if we, I mean, if anger is really all about protection, whether it's um, Mm -hmm. actually appropriate in the moment where there's harm that could come to your body or a loved one or, you know, uh, or if you're protecting those, like you're protecting vulnerability because of how you were raised. And if you showed emotion, there would be repercussions or ostracization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Humiliation. I'll give you something to cry about or all whatever it is. Yeah. So if like the anger is always about protection, if you're able to create a safe space for the primary emotion to be expressed, then there's no need for the anger. You got it. Yeah. It's kind of like reminds me of what Gabor says about addiction. It's like not why the addiction, but why the pain. Yep. Yeah, because the addiction is an attempt to manage. To soothe the pain, yes. And often the anger then is the attempt to soothe the pain. Yeah, so when we're talking about um, suppression, it makes me think about uh, as a a yoga teacher working with people one-to-one, almost every man that I've worked with is dealing with some kind of low back pain. (laughs) And Uh I think the way that a lot of men think to deal with it is go see a physiotherapist. Yeah. Like I got to strengthen my core. <laughs> That's uh-huh. how we deal with it. But there's something to me that it's so prevalent and so common to men. And having gone through my own back pain issues in my late twenties and early thirties, I know what was going on for me and the kind of physical therapy that I engaged in through yoga, mm-hmm. uh, wasn't the only thing that helped heal that back pain. <laughs> yeah. 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 What do you think about, 
how, like, what are the health costs to suppressing anger and emotion? Well, then I'm going to reference uh, somebody who, whose work that you're tied in with and we've been talking about today. I think one of the best books on this is going to be Gabor Monte. Gabor Mate's books, When the Body Says No. Um, and he cites a lot of the research that looks at suppression um, and then later physical illness and symptoms. And he's looking at it a lot from the disease perspective. Um, but in terms of what you're talking about is the somatically held experiences. I too, when I was, that's why I was laughed when you said, I, I see a lot of lower back pain. I see a ton of it. I've seen people go through surgeries that are likely unnecessary. Um, as a result of this, and I'm sure you have as well. Yeah. And if you were to ask me, what do I see more of now than I did even 15 years ago when I, you know, when I uh, first started practicing, it would be much more somatically, you know, held symptoms. And I mean, if you think about it, if we're containing something that wants to come out, we got to use a lot of pressure and strain to do that. Right. And so, for example, and hopefully I make sense when I say this, almost universally when somebody comes into my office and let's say, you know, I'm getting to know them even for the first time and getting to know a little bit about their story and why they're interested in, you know, pursuing therapy or exploring therapy, they may start to say, well, I've had this experience and then this person so-and-so died, blah, blah, blah. And then you'll see emotions start to well up in their eyes, for example. And then I watch the resistance that their body goes through to not let those tears fall mm. or to not let it become too much, to not let it become a full-on cathartic level cry, right? And so there's energy that has to take place where the body is now using energy to only allow for the eyes maybe to wetten up, but not to, for the tears to fall. Or when these kind of big sobs or heaves come and a person doesn't want to go to that level of vulnerability, they'll use, they'll they'll hold on in their body. So they'll start to condense in their body. My best guess is that that holding is where we're, you know, that holding in the body is what then later manifests as these pains that sometimes don't have a medical explanation. You know? mm. um, so whether it's in the neck, the jaw, the, you know, the, the hands, the chest or the lower back is a big one. Um, yeah. What do you think it is about the low back? Why there? Huh. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm wondering if that might have something to do just with the vagus nerve or just the fact that, you know, our spinal cord might be registering a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, we have one nervous system and it registers physical and emotional pain and just that bundle of nerves that also happens in the gut. So I know a lot of people will also have stomach pain that's also somatically where i'll hold a lot of my stuff so i notice uh, that, that they're more male i don't know exactly male indigestion yeah like yeah acid reflux and that mm -hmm. i had that going on at that age i'm talking about too yeah. uh, well you know i think about like like i know for me the primary emotion behind a lot of my anger yeah uh, like if I track back my anger, I look at times where I would get angry and then I'd be like, why the hell did I react like so strongly to mm -hmm. that? You know? And if I could track it back, it would usually have something to do with a sense of loss of control mm -hmm. and tracking that back goes to fear as mm -hmm. the, the primary emotion. And I can look at my childhood and see how, you know, my boundaries weren't respected. I was a sensitive, creative kid uh -huh. growing up in a tough blue collar environment. Uh -huh. And I was afraid of like all the men in my life pretty yeah. much. Yeah. 
Um, so I can like track it back to that. Uh, hmm, I'm not sure where I was going with that actually. Oh, but then thinking about like, you're uh, saying primary emotion and you're talking about fear. Yeah. So fear and like uh, feeling fear in the gut Yep. and knowing that like, a way that I unconsciously try to protect myself is by exercising like intensely mm -hmm. and weightlifting and all mm -hmm. that. Like, you know, it's like getting the six pack, like armoring up uh -huh. where the fear <laughs> is. And I think <laughs> yeah. there's a direct correlation to the lower back, yeah. you know, like, like doing too many crunches, like overdeveloping yeah. the abs is going to have yeah. an adverse effect on the back. Yeah. And also like something about the posture, like if you think about like a, a shame posture yeah, where you hunch it, over, yeah, yeah you yeah, hunch yeah. over, yep. protect your soft belly. And the opposite of that is like puff your chest out and over, interesting. overextend the lower back, right? Like, yeah. I'm not afraid of nothing. I could see both of those. Yeah. 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 Just kind of like thinking about that live as we're talking. Well, it's interesting too. And the thing that I was thinking about as I was listening to you is I've, I've known people who have developed scar tissue. There's been no medical intervention in their lower back um, as a product of uh, sexual assault when they were a young child. Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, so something about that. And I do tend to see with sexual abuse or molestation and that lower back region um, more often that seems to couple a lot. Um, yeah. And I mean, this is just anecdotally, but as we're talking about that, I do tend to see just like where that nausea is typically the a purging reaction that will go with sexual assault um, or the processing of a sexual assault. Yeah. Like the fear it's wants weird. The fear wants to move out. Mm -hmm. you know? Like it, it emotion doesn't want to be stuck in our body. It and, does not. Yeah. <laughs> it does. not. So, however it wants to get out and yeah. Uh, shouting, screaming, throwing up, purging mm -hmm. will seem like, good ways to get some of that out. Um, you know, we're talking about anger, we're talking about suppression and my mind is coming to, uh, you know, we mentioned Gabor Mate and yeah. recently he's been talking about another kind of famous male figure who is his colleague, someone who else is, is on the scene teaching and traveling and all that Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. And I think Gabor is even dedicating a chapter in his new book about Jordan Peterson specifically. Mm -hmm. And he talks about when he looks at Jordan Peterson, what he sees is a lot of repressed anger and rage. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if it's that repressed. It feels like right at the surface to me. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I yeah. see, I see like yeah. actually like a lot of struggle on uh, yeah. Jordan's part to control that. That's like, exactly it. We're seeing I, the same thing. I, I think it, uh, I think at certain points I could just see like how much he would just love to go like, just shut the fuck up or like, yeah, you know, like really yeah. like let it out. But yeah. I, you know, and like the subtitle of his book is an antidote to chaos. Yeah. And that to me suggests a real need to maintain control. Uh-huh. And you know, anger unleashed is chaos, you know. Mm -hmm. And and that can be like really scary for someone who needs to for whatever reason maintain a semblance of control. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, I'm thinking about him because I'm thinking about like the adverse health effects of suppression. Yeah. And I know that he's recently gone into rehab for anxiety medication. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So he, you know, and the kind of the public story of that is that his wife uh, got a cancer diagnosis ah. and that led to him taking anxiety meds. Now I'm sure that already compounded 
some of what was going on for him already due to his schedule and just his lifestyle. Absolutely. Right. But I can, when I was thinking about it this morning, I was thinking about how like illness, especially illness of a loved one uh, is totally uncontrollable. It's something that's completely out of your control. (laughs) And if you're not able to surrender to that, just how much anxiety and fear that that's going to bring up. Right. Yeah. I've always said, well, recently, I shouldn't say always recently what's come to me is that I think that true wisdom is knowing when to fight and knowing when to surrender because at times that fight is very important and at times it'll be the, the, the least helpful thing that you can do. And so as you're talking about him, yeah, that's a, uh, it's likely that anxiety is asking for that surrender to be, you know, to be released or we got to medicate it to keep it down. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you've, you've heard of this thing called the serenity prayer, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think you're the first one to think about this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all about knowing when to surrender. Yeah. yeah. When to work toward change. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm just thinking about like that, uh, you know, in me knowing like how uh, a way that I, I coped with my childhood fear and all yeah. that was like, was control. Uh-huh. And notice when like my need for when my need for control is triggered, often it comes out as like frustration or anger or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if you find that that's a common thing with men is control because especially like these days it's it's such in the limelight men's abuse of power and mm-hmm. what is abuse of power all about other than control, right? And then thus not as an attempt to not feel that vulnerability again. So if I'm yeah. in control, then I'm not going to get hurt. And so it's a, it's a, it's an attempt to, to not get hurt again. So control, so people control to the degree that they experience threat um, or they, to the degree they experience fear. So the more fear they have and the more they experience threat, then the greater levels of control they're going to engage in. And then they might use a variety of mechanisms to, to, um, to facilitate that control. Um, but yeah, so, even for example, in the, in the domestic violence world, there's this thing called the power and control wheel. And it's just this model that a lot of times people use and they hand it out. And there's like on the spokes of this wheel are all these behavioral things with con- power and control in the middle. So, and these are just being strategies of how one might attempt to gain power and control in their relationship, for example. But I've never thought that that was just that helpful just to give that to people to explain, this is why you're doing it because it doesn't really explain the full story people want control to the degree they experience threat. And so the more controlling are, the more fear they usually have underneath that. So it's a, uh, it can be very insightful. So like if I was reading a police report, for example, and I'm looking through what somebody did and I'm looking through all these controlling things, whether they were blocking a door, preventing their partner from leaving, for example, uh, maybe taking the car keys, maybe you know, whatever it might be, maybe putting a GS, GPS system, tracking on their car, or their cell phone or whatever it might be these attempts to not get hurt. I've always thought though, and one of the things again, that, the, that, that, that my experience has taught me is that if you can help those individuals learn that they can heal from hurt, they're not as interested in controlling and trying to prevent hurt from happening. Mm-hmm. So then their controlling side diminishes. Once you've learned that, Oh, my body has an innate healing mechanism to it. And so even if the worst thing happens, happens, and I get left or abandoned or whatever, I now know that 
there's a healing capacity that my body has. And I know now maybe if they've successfully worked with another counselor or therapist or whomever that, oh, and they're maybe while they're not plentiful and maybe while they're rare, that there are people who are also equipped and uh, willing to help me through that so that I don't have to go at it alone. Well, then those controlling mechanisms can draw back. That is the controlling of self or controlling of others. We don't need to stay as armored up because we have this insight that we can heal from wounds if they should occur. Yeah. Yeah. That totally makes sense. And um, that again requires that we're able to go into the hurt. If you, and not just into the hurt, but all the way through the hurt. I watch this happen a lot. And that is, is the people will start the process and then attempt to change horses in the middle of the stream. Even in my disclosure statement, when I'm working with somebody, I say, you know what, this can be very challenging in ways that you might not be able to really um, wrap your mind around. You can't conceive of it yet. You can't conceive of it yet. And this is going to be really hard. And my encouragement is that you don't quit in the middle of it. If you're going to do this, you see it through because it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's a hell of a sell, man. That's a hell of a sell because when they're starting, it feels wrong. It feels like there's no way that this, you know, when they're being consumed by that shadow, by that darkness and by that pain, it feels like it's going to go on forever, that it cannot subside. And so that's a really hard one. And I've not found a way that I'm fully satisfied with in terms of articulating again, what that is like without having the experience. So you're stuck, you know, I'm telling this is whatever you can think of. Um, Multiply that by 10, as my last ayahuasca roommate said, (laughs) you know, in terms of how bad do you think it can get? Multiply that by 10 and then just don't quit when it's there. Yeah. It eventually will resolve. No, I I think uh, I love that disclosure. And it's something that I always talk about too. I even put it in my my new book, which deals with yoga and plant medicine work. Um, Just pointing out that like looks, often it feels like it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. Like when healing starts to happen, it's bringing up stuff that's been suppressed. So you're feeling it's a lot sucked. of stuff that's not new. It's old stuff, but it's got to come up to the surface and uh, it's going to feel like things are getting worse and not better. And that could be really discouraging. But like you said, like you have to go through it. There's yeah. No you can, there's way. no around. <laughs> there's no real good around. I'm okay with people continuing to look for it. And I think a lot of the colleges and universities are still promoting those kind of philosophies. I just, I'm not convinced that it exists. I mean, I've tried a lot of the workarounds myself because I want them just as much as anybody does, but (laughs) I'm not sold, man. I don't, I don't see anything that's, that's, you know, given me much promise that you can get around this stuff. Yeah. Like I find like a lot of the more cognitive based therapies, like positive psychology type Mm -hmm. stuff, affirmation work, uh, it just feels like band-aid work to me. hundred percent. And I'm okay with it. It can help you manage for a right? bandaid for yeah. a bandaid. As long as we uh, know it's a bandaid, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that it's not resolution, that it yeah. is management, that it's symptom management. It's not symptom resolution and that there may be another path at symptom resolution, but that one has a big, a heavier toll. Yeah. Like kind of like medication. It can help with the symptoms for, for a time, help you manage that, find, you know, some kind of yeah. even ground for a while, but eventually stuff's just going to come back up. Well, and I think the, one of the good things that could come out of people being more, more embracing of that difficult journey, uh, that difficult healing journey is that once we realize just how bad it is to do some of the things that we do to other human beings, mm-hmm. um, I think our world would become a lot better place because that healing is so damn hard that we do become a little bit more mindful of our impact on others. Um, we'd be a little bit, uh, we would work with children differently. I could tell you that if we mm-hmm. really knew what 
was happening to kids who were humiliated, for example, where we don't even consider that normal abuse anymore. Uh, well, we're seeing what's happening with kids. I mean, mm-hmm. you just have to read the news, especially mm-hmm. in the U.S. Yep. Um, yeah, and I think something else that happened that can help is when men like us who may be mm-hmm. relatable to certain demographics openly talk about this in Absolutely. a way in a way that uh, you know, like we were talking about the men's group stuff earlier, and um, I was thinking about like some of the men's groups that I've been in, and some of the kind of the renaissance around men's groups that's happening with younger guys these days. Mm-hmm. And I find a lot of it uh, turns me off. Like when I see men being overly demonstrative of their sensitivity and their vulnerability, um, I find that like a a bit of a turnoff Hmm. Uh, in that, like maybe I I feel that it's not fully authentic, that it's kind of like a show to show how much of an ally you are or something like that. There's something about it doesn't ring totally authentic to me. And that repels me a little bit. And so I can see why a lot of men like average Joe's blue collar guys just don't even want to go there. Yeah. Well, some of that could be because it's inviting for us into material that we don't want to go into. Um, But what you said can happen as well. And that is, is that if somebody is vulnerably is vulnerable and it's inauthentic, it's not healing from them and it's not helpful to everybody else. And it's essentially a robbery of everybody else's time. What I found is that if somebody is raw and honest in their emotional expression and they're authentic in it, um, that that's usually fairly healing for everybody. And it's not a turnoff, but if somebody is like, Oh, well, I know this is what's expected of me. For example, I'll have sometimes clients will say this to me and it's always a pretty, uh, it's a good insight that a correction needs to be made that, Oh, will you want me to cry or will you want me to do this? And it's not about what I want at all. I want your authentic self. And I see that your body wants to do that. That's why I'm encouraging it, but this has nothing to do with what I want. Um, but there can be people who feel like, oh, so I'm here to people, please, or this is what this group is about. It's about cathartic release on the vulnerable side of emotion. Um, and so I'm going to now play that part versus yeah. get there through the hard work it takes to get there. Yeah. Um, and so maybe that's what you're referencing if somebody's faking it, essentially. Um, well, or just like making too big of a show of it. Like, I, I think like for me, male <laughs> models that I look toward, uh, are maybe so demonstrative about these mm-hmm. things. Like they're not getting on Instagram, filming a video of them crying like, yeah. close, you know, like I think, and I don't know, this is, comes around to like, what does it look like to be a healthy balanced man? Yeah. And I, I think we're at a place right now where we're not really sure because we've, we certainly know that we don't want to perpetuate like the John Wayne stoic male tough guy image. Mm-hmm. Anymore. We know that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like maybe the pendulum has like swung in the completely far the other overcorrection. Yeah. And, and it's kind of funny being a guy, you know, I'm 45. So I was around in the nineties. I read, uh, Robert Bly, Iron John when I was like 18 and starting Mm -hmm. to work on my issues. Um, and so I was there like the tail end of that men's movement and to see it coming back up again now in very similar way, a lot of the same stuff going on. Um, but I don't know if that's like completely the answer either is like men working it out together in this way and, and making a big show of it, especially now with social media, everything is documented. So I think a part of me is responding to that. Like Mm -hmm. if, if you're doing this deep healing work, 
why do you have to show it so much? You know, like, yeah. what's the impulse to do that? Um, so I think the part of me is, has trouble with that aspect of mm-hmm. it, but I don't know. I think like, it feels like men are like a little bit lost right now. And I think I that's agree. why people like Gabor and Jordan Peterson and someone like Steven Jenkinson are gaining so much traction because they're older men. They seem to have a lot of experience. They seem to like have it together. Mm-hmm. And I think men are looking for guidance or looking for new models, but yeah. I don't know if any one man is going to ever embody you know, a, a kind of like sacred masculine or whatever, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of like wondering out loud here, I guess I feel a bit. Well, I think these, these types of conversations are a step in the right direction. You know, I mean, even the fact that, you know, as we sit here as two men exploring this out loud and going, you know, what do you make of this? And what do you think could help people heal? And um, what does that look like? And, um, and those types of things is that, you know, it begins with a conversation and just acknowledging that maybe we don't have it figured out. Like, We've pretended when I say we, obviously, you know, that's a, that's a bigger collective. We that was had momentum long before you and I ever showed up here. Um, but a change needs to happen for sure. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that the gig is up as far as us pretending that we don't have vulnerable options. Um, and so how we go about expressing it and what should be private, what should be public, how does that look, what is our role, which might be behind some of the questions that you're now asking, all wonderful questions. But what I'm convinced of is that uh, this, this masquerading that we don't feel, the things that have been ascribed to the feminine is just absolute nonsense. It's just nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if anything, you know, I'm here just to, you know, be one of the first people to say, or not the first people, but one of the people in the movement to say that, uh, you know, men feel, um, that's what I do know. <laughs> and suppressing that, uh, has consequences. And that's what I also know. Yeah. Consequences personally and in your family and in the mm-hmm. culture at large. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think, you know, like Brene Brown's onto it when she's talking about vulnerability. Um, vulnerability seems to me to be the polar opposite to anger. Uh, mm-hmm. Anger is like, seems to be the protection against vulnerability. So if That's we can up, open up spaces where men are allowed to be vulnerable and even like being able to express anger or to admit that they're angry because it's been mm-hmm. so stigmatized. And mm-hmm. I know like for myself, that's been a tough one to like mm-hmm. admit to my wife when I was actually angry about something. Cause yeah. I didn't want to be the angry guy. Yeah. Um, so like part of being vulnerable is being able to say like, you know, I'm feeling really angry right now. I would agree. Yeah. Um, so I think that's just like a huge teaching from you know, from the feminine it's like mm-hmm. the, the healing power of vulnerability. And, uh, I don't know. I feel really vulnerable cause I'm kind of like just winging it here and wondering <laughs> out loud, but yeah. I, I, I just appreciate how you wrap that up. Um, that the answer really is unclear, but one thing that is important is that we're having these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. So I I want to thank you for taking this time and going on this uh, exploration and wondering aloud with me. Well, thank you. I very much appreciate it. It's been an honor. And if people want to find out more about your work, where do they go? So um, 
my website's got a blog and then my podcast links will be up there here fairly soon. I'm hoping to launch that next month. Um, the web, the website is, uh, ND, um, which stands for new directions. So it's just, uh, ND, then the number four and then the word life, L I F E.com. So www.nd, the number four, the word life.com. Great. Yeah. I'll provide a link to that too. Okay. And, uh, when are you getting the podcast started? Hopefully next month. That's my goal is it's, it's going to be up as rough and raw as it is, uh, in October. And then who knows if you're kind enough, I may, uh, ask you to return the favor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I noticed on your website, it says, uh, coming soon. Like when you, yeah, see, when it's you been, it's been coming soon for two years. Well, I know, so. we, t- we talked about that at the beginning. So <laughs> yeah, I want to just give you the encouragement to do it. Cause oh, I, I appreciate that. The more voices out there, the better. And, uh, each one of us is going to resonate with different people out there. So there's room for all of us, you know? Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate the encouragement. All right, man. Well, enjoy your day. Have a great hike with your wife. And uh, I hope to talk to you soon, man. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Brian. Yeah, thanks. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or sharing it on social media. If you're looking for support on your medicine path, you can become a Patreon subscriber and have access to hours of yoga practice resources, podcast extras, and a lot more. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. If you'd like more personal support, you can book an online session with me at brianjames.ca. Thanks so much for listening. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. Until next time we meet on the medicine path. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.